0: We're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. (laughs) This is Beyond the Pass conversations with people
1: from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality, and what makes us get out of bed each day.
0: Before we get into this episode of Beyond the Pass, I just wanted to mention that we do talk about suicide and suicidal ideation in this episode. I'm going to put the exact timings of that part of the conversation in the show notes below so you can just pop right over it if you'd like to. And as always, please listen with care and take good care of yourselves. Thanks so much. Here's Emma Ross. Welcome back to Beyond the Pass. I am so excited to be chatting with Emma Ross. Emma began working in restaurants in front of house and then transitioned to pursuing a career on super yachts, working her way up to be head chef while traveling the globe over a 15 year period. After settling down full-time in London and continuing to chef, she made a career change and became a fully qualified mental health first aid instructor. Emma delivers training for us at Kelly's Cause and also her own organization Seize the Mind, which supports the mental health of those working at sea. I just want to start by asking you what motivated you to move from life on land, working in restaurants, doing a degree in psychology, to then being like a life at sea, boats, yahoo. Where did that inspiration come
1: from? um honestly a girlfriend of mine was doing it and sending me loads of photos of her in kind of glamorous locations and after university I had started a job at like 90 no i must have been about 21 and yeah I just it felt like real life was kind of coming in too much at me and she was living and I thought I should be living the dream as well so I went over just to kind of explore I think in my head my intention was it's almost going to be like a gap year like I'd done the studying I'd really committed to everything I'd done everything I was meant to do ticked all the boxes and now this year was for me and yeah one year turned into 15 and I just went going and going and going and when you arrived on the boat had you
0: spent time on boats before or were you really just thrown in
1: no. So I had zero kind of <laughs> lots of boats sailing. Um, I went the motorboat route, which is slightly easier for you to get your first job on. No sailing required, no experience required. It's like, can you clean a toilet? Uh, do you look good in a skort? And uh, you got the job.
0: <laughs> do you look good in a skort? Wow! Um, yeah. <laughs> how did you, when you sort of started out how did you end up being in the kitchen? And you worked in kitchens before or like what was the journey sort of to the galley?
1: Um, So no, I had never done. I'd always been like a really um, confident home chef. I was this precocious 19 year old doing (laughs) dinner parties my friends and in south africa i think the only kind of access we had was like jamie oliver he was the one program we got and i used to sit every single week it would come on once a week i'd write down all the recipes and then i'd invite my friends around to dinner and then yeah make a themed dinner party which was at 19 um so kind of following on from that i went into front of house uh, which is called stewardessing on yachts and it was when one of the chefs took a a holiday the captain didn't want to fly a new chef in just kind of budget and like a kind of ease thing and asked if anyone would like to kind of step up and I was like this is my chance this is my gap and I absolutely loved being in the galley and that kind of cemented the fact that I wanted to be cooking food for people I didn't want to be kind of you know cleaning toilets and doing service forever and ever amen so I then started just accumulating courses I was self-taught and And wherever I went in the Mediterranean, if we were in France or Cannes or Parma, I would go and enlist in a two, three day cooking course using local products and then just use that knowledge and kind of, yeah, I built on my knowledge as I traveled.
0: It's an amazing education to be able to learn with the ingredients that you're actually going to use.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, I was kind of obviously getting inspiration from these world-class chefs who were leagues above me and um, the nice thing about yachting is you know we don't have to th- worry about things like budget so i had the the money and the freedom and an incredible space uh, the galley to start practicing recipes and you know if you start off as a crew chef you get that kind of uh, you get the confidence because the crew is always so ha- like helpful and they're grateful it kind of really increased my confidence so then build up into becoming, yeah, head chef.
0: When you were sort of working your way up the ladder, so going from like crew chef to like, I don't know, what's the hierarchy on a boat? Like how many stages are there before they're just like, this is your kitchen now?
1: Um, Well, it depends on the size of the boat. So the boats I were on were tiny. So a lot of them would be sole chefs. Um, and I just started there. The last boat I was on, I actually just stayed as crew chef for the whole time I was on there, just because they would fly in with their own private personal chef who cooks at their different homes. So I just got to look after the crew, which is actually amazing. Um, cooking for everyone daily, providing you know their kind of emotional needs and nutritional needs. Um, and then I would just assist the head chef when he flew in with the guests and owners. So the hierarchy just depends on the, on the size of the boat, but it's a pretty short journey in a galley. It's normally crew chef or slash sous chef into head chef pretty quickly.
0: It's a really amazing opportunity if you have the drive to do it, whereas in a more traditional restaurant, particularly in that fine dining sort of upper crusty space, it can take you literally years and years to get off the line, never mind running your own kitchen. And so it feels like there is that opportunity for really fast advancement if you're hungry for it.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think as well, there's also, there's a whole different culture behind chefing on yachts versus chefing in kitchens. I've done both. Kitchens, it's like, it's more kind of a military style of like you've got to put your time in you've got to start off at the bottom which i think is really good and we do have an element of that on yachts but you get the right boat you get the right owners you get the right captain behind you and people really want to see you progress whereas in professional kitchens and i've only ever worked in professional kitchens in london it was kind of more of a like stay in your place um you know you absorb more roles and responsibility, but that wouldn't be reflected in your salary. So there was a kind of like a difference there that I found unusual having only ever worked on yachts. Um, Yeah, difficult to kind of understand moving into professional kitchens in London.
0: It must've been super weird. When you look back, sort of, you're like chefing in the yachting industry. If you were going to say, like, this was the best thing about chefing in that industry, and this was the worst thing about chefing in that industry, what would those things be?
1: Definitely the best thing is you are dealing with the world class products. Like, you're sitting in Cannes or you're sitting in Antigua, you've got fishermen literally coming up to the side of the boat, holding up fresh catch of the day lobsters that they've got. And like I said, you've got a credit card that really has no limits. So if you wanted to splash out and get 17 lobsters, you had the opportunity to do that. Um, it doesn't mean that you lose the respect for any of the ingredients. Uh, ingredients. It just means that you, you get the opportunity to work with a lot more. Um, that's definitely the best. The worst is often you're on your own in a galley. So if you're quite social, uh, it can be quite lonely doing it all by yourself, a lot of pressure, uh, especially when things go wrong. When it goes, rights everything is just like perfect when you have the glory it's like all you baby like exactly Bathe in all the glory by myself but when something goes wrong when you when you break something or something doesn't turn out or you're putting out a white chocolate mousse and it splits into the three different kind of chocolates uh components and you're like oh my god I have no other dessert that pressure is really really hard and yeah it's all but it's all on you really make or break um and then the other thing is you know guests on boats if if they don't know how chefing works, they assume it's like a restaurant. So all of your mise en place is done, all of your prep is done. But you know, you get seventeen people coming back, and they're a little bit on. They've been partying all night in Ibiza, and now they want seventeen different kind of like foods, like grilled cheese with truffle and all of that kind of stuff. They expect it to come out in the same time as if you had like a brigade of chefs in a restaurant that has everything ready to go in their mise en place. So managing expectations sometimes with the guests would be kind of tricky.
0: I imagine that's so hard and that idea of like needing to make the guest happy and it's like that's everything and they're paying so much money balancing that between like what's actually realistic I can't even imagine that tightrope.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, you try and do as much homework. We send out things like um, uh, prep sheets and we ask people to fill them in, like what their dream meal is, what their allergies are. And everyone always, always lies on their prep sheet. They always <laughs> say that they're healthy. You want this and they want this yeah. and they're yeah. vegan. And then as soon as they have like, you know, the gluten-free person sees the breakfast muffin, suddenly they're eating all the muffins and you're like, okay, <laughs> like it means nothing.
0: We want like a light salad for lunch but now that we've been at the club what we'd love is 17
1: hamburgers like exactly exactly and there is no such thing as no on a super yacht like whatever the guest says if they want a banana milkshake from virgin islands like flown in on a private jet the answer is yes it's just about how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take so just going in with that mindset can be a little bit intimidating because You know, cooking is such a a passionate, personal thing. It's so subjective, like what I think is amazing versus what you think is amazing. So when people have access to, you know, five-star restaurants like their whole life and then they come onto a super yard, you get some people that are really amazing. They're grateful. They know that this is a job and then you get other people that, yeah, they just, they quite like to make your life hard.
0: Is there, okay, this is a bit of a trashy question, but it's really just to serve my own curiosity.
1: Is it about the (laughs) load?
0: I literally could talk to you for an hour about questions I have about that show, but no, it's not about Below Debt. I'm curious about like what the maddest thing that you experienced in terms of like guests waking you up at all hours, demanding like a crudité or like somebody wanting you to like swing on a vine with a birthday cake in your hands or like, can you think of
1: like the most outrageous request you ever got? Um, I can. Both of them are not when I was chefing, actually. It was front of house. So stewardessing, we had a um, guest come on. He had been on the boat for about three days. He was miserable the whole time. None of us thought he was having a great trip. And um, we went into the into the salon, the Sky Lounge, and he had been sitting on these same chairs for three days. And he walked in and just decided, like, and I'm at the stage where I'm like, you know, doing water and bread, which is just before the show, Like, if you're doing water and bread, you tell them on the radio, like, Jess, Jess, water and bread's going out. So then she knows to start getting the, you know, everything that's hot, getting places up. And it's it's a process. It takes time when there's only one chef and there's 12 guests. And he looks at the chairs and he just declared all the chairs. He hated all of them. And he wanted new chairs in the dining room immediately, otherwise he wouldn't have lunch. And I'm like, what do I do now? So that was kind of wild. So we had to kind of like soothe him and like make him okay. And that promise of chairs happened
0: wait can i just ask you once the chair situation like
1: did his trip turn around like did he get a better attitude after that or no no pretty miserable the whole time he <laughs> looked like the ghost of michael hutchin <laughs> and he was there for seven days and he was miserable every single day we were kind of handling him or dealing with a problem or talking about like you know exporting our chairs um and at the end <laughs> they kind of hand you a, an envelope this part of below is true they hand you an envelope with like you know a tip and he kind of shook hands with all of us as he was leaving we we're all lined up like good little Yossies in our in our epaulets and he handed us all our envelopes and he just said at the end of it he's like best trip ever and we were like what were you on the same trip and he gave us a huge tip like we just couldn't understand it so i guess maybe in his life you know he treated people badly and he then just made sure that you were reimbursed for your his Poor behavior. Bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It was bullshit. Sorry. What was the second one that you were going to say? Okay. So the second one was we had a whole load of New York fashionistas come onto the boat. On the big boats, in it's a charter boats in Croatia, and this is about ten years ago. So Croatia's incredible; it's always been incredible, but like ten years ago, the it was a bit of a different time. It was harder getting produce, and you know all of that. And one day they woke up, and I think they just wanted to be extra. And this is before the days of Instagram, so there was nothing that they could kind of you know want to show off on the grid. And they woke up and decided that because there was a captain on the boat, they were going to get remarried. So they asked us to organize a like seven star wedding. Wedding dress had to be designed and flown in. Uh, Wedding cake had to be made on the day. And they wanted the I do to be timed perfectly as the the sun touched the horizon on the sunset. Um, So, yeah, that was that was an intense day. There was a lot of running around. You can't
0: see my face, obviously, but my jaw is like, I need to scrape it off the floor. (laughs) That is madness. I mean, there's something I like about that in the sense that they weren't doing it for the internet. Like they clearly just, that desire was just for them, which somehow makes it feel like less gross to me than if they were doing it like performatively, I guess. But I
1: suppose it was a different time. It was performative to their friends. Yeah. It just was like the larger kind of like world that was instagram but and their friends were not very cool about it either so while we are trying to manage like a tiny weenie bridezilla who's decided this is her day to kind of really shine we also had to manage their friends who were consistently getting drunk every single day on champagne lunches and when we were the timing was so kind of tight because of the sudden i I mentioned the sun, right yeah When we were trying to get people hustles, like they were all drunk and in their rooms and sleeping, having their afternoon sleeps. And we had to like rouse them and then get them dressed and then out onto the top deck where we could have this perfect little curated wedding.
0: Um, how did you do with the timing? Did they say I do is the sun kissed the water?
1: <laughs> Honestly, I can't remember. I remember like... <laughs> Where I think my brain just shut down after like 12 hours of like herding rich people around super yachts. And I think, I can't remember, but they seemed happy and they gave us a, yeah, a great tip at the end of it. So honestly,
0: it's outrageous behavior. Wait, can I ask you another quick question? Can a captain just marry anybody like is a captain automatically like a priest or like a justice of the
1: peace, I guess. I, yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, this they did it so whether it has a legal binding but i think if you're at sea and he is a captain i believe you can marry people at sea
0: i'll honestly keep that in mind for my next super yachting holiday (laughs) you know obviously the yachting industry and like even just based on what you just described is notoriously extremely tough and it sort of feels like it's the most challenging aspects of restaurant work but like on steroids how Or when, I suppose, did you start to register the impact of working in that environment and living in that environment?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think when life is going well, even though you've probably got issues bubbling under the surface, if you've got a great team and you're earning great money. um, Service industry people, I think, are some of the most brilliant people in the world. Like we're always putting other people's needs first, um, but that means that we don't always address our needs. Um, I think when, when I got onto a boat that was really unhealthy, I think I then had to take a step back. I wasn't kind of part of the hedonistic, lovely life that, you know, you always see about yachts, like drinking every night in fabulous places with gorgeous people, um, in bikinis, like most of the time, it's when I got onto a really bad boat and I saw that it was kind of being mismanaged in a massive way that I kind of took a, a step back. Um, and then when it wasn't handled, kind of well, it it resulted in me having a breakdown and having to leave the boat. Um, And then I think with doing therapy and speaking to individuals and looking at the whole industry with a kind of a self-care lens on, um, I think my whole understanding shifted. And I realized that actually what yachting was taking from me was more than what I was getting from it. Um, And that changed my whole perspective a lot.
0: It's also because that, and I mean, we sort of touched on it before, but that like meeting the demands of the guest is like priority number one. And so self-sacrifice would be the name of the game, right? It doesn't matter if you're hungry or tired or like you can't get new chairs for the dining room. Guest demands are like, that's what's met. And I imagine there's very little energy or time to ever consider prioritizing yourself first, like because you've just been conditioned to put yourself second over and over and over again in this really extreme way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there is no escape. Like at the end of a shift, even if you've done a double in London, you still get to go home, you still get to close Mm -hmm. or in your apartment, be with your friends, your family, your flatmates, your lover, your husband, your wife, your kids. And that's your actual tribe. When you're on a yacht, you never get to get off that yacht. You know, if someone has kind of irritated you throughout the day, you have to go to bed with them. If you share a cabin, you wake up and have breakfast with them, you have lunch with them, you have dinner with them, you work all day with them, you go out with them, you go drinking with them, you go on holidays sometimes with them. So yeah, there's, I think that kind of level of um, extremism uh, just contributes to like mental health deteriorating in different ways. When it's good, it's probably one of the best jobs in the world, you know, like uh, kind of doing amazing service where everything's gone right and everything is slick and everyone was kind of like helping each other like there's no better feeling than kind of delivering an amazing product but when things go bad and you know or people go bad then there is no way that you can just kind of like close the door and we don't get to have like any days off if you are on a yacht there are no such thing as days off. So I know a lot of people work really long, hard hours in uh, the service industry in London, but it gets even more hectic on boats because you can be doing three, four months with only like half a day every month, if you're lucky, if you're on a busy charter boat. And basically you you, you put your head down at the beginning of the summer and you don't pop up until the end of the summer. And what you've got is probably exhausted emaciated crew but they've got a huge amount of money in their bank balance but then they've had no escape no release so you can imagine the kind of parties and wildness that happens when you've had young beautiful uh, attractive crew all kind of like um, stewing and fermenting together for like two three months and then they've got a huge amount of cash burning holes in their in their pockets you can imagine why it gets a little bit rowdy at the end of the season
0: It sounds like a huge factor in terms of staying mentally healthy if you're working in the industry is on your team and what boat you're on. And that if you're managed by, I mean, this is true everywhere, isn't it? But if you're managed by good people, you've got good coworkers, those are great environments and it's way more survivable. And then if you're in that negative environment, it just goes downhill so quickly. Is there sort of an unofficial like whisper network in terms of knowing what you're getting yourself into or is it very much like show up on the day and then you find out who these people
1: are? I mean, when you get into the industry, you're, you have no experience and you have no contact. It, it really is. And you, you're so desperate to get your foot in the door that most people will take any job just so they can get some kind of security and get something on their CV. So you're probably the most vulnerable when you join. You're young, you're away from home, sometimes for the first time, and you have no kind of no understanding of like who you're getting hired by. So that really is kind of it's the wild, wild west. Um, It's getting a little bit better now. But then as you kind of grow, as your network grows, as you build, you then start to reach out like, hey, I've got a job offer from this boat. Has anyone kind of like worked with them before? And with the rise of like social media and WhatsApp, you get these groups like chef groups or chicks or South Africans in yachting whatever it is these kind of bespoke groups and asking people like for intel on there is normally quite helpful but yeah you can be very very vulnerable um and i've seen it time and time again you know um what i would deem as irresponsible um even dangerous captains kind of get fired from a boat for a whole plethora of things it can be Um, sexual harassment, um, it can be doing drugs, it can be alcoholism and they just disappear and then boop, they pop up and they've got another job on another boat and they're earning huge amounts of salaries and again in charge of people's lives and safeties on boats and that happens way too much for my liking.
0: And is there any kind of system in place where you'd be sort of blacklisted from the industry?
1: Um, It depends who you are. Once you have um, the kind of once you have, I would say, the the power of being a captain, if you've got that title and you've done the the courses and you've networked, I think it's way harder for you to kind of get blacklisted. I don't know anyone that's blacklisted, but if you are a young first stewardess, green stewie, green deckhands, then all it takes is a couple of bad uh, CV kind of uh, referrals or references. And then you're pretty much kind of frozen out if you are problematic or if you are like you cause trouble. And that normally means an authority or you're a little bit too like chatty or it's not normally for the usual misdeeds. Like, you I mean, on boats, it's so... Different to normal life. I mean, probably the closest relationship is not necessarily oils and Rick, but maybe so, but like service. You can turn up hungover to work. As long as you are a warm body that can do your job, like you will get given chance and chance and chance again, which, yeah, is kind of amazing for a lot of people but obviously allows kind of little things to kind of worm their way into the industry it's definitely getting more professional now with the rise of management companies and dpa there's services out there like ice One and nautilus who are like unions that can help you but yeah we're we're a few steps behind the rest of the world i would say
0: what would you say are the biggest barriers to finding support if you find yourself on a boat and you're not doing well you know that you need some help what stops people from reaching out and is it also about sort of lack of resources or even language around it
1: definitely lack of resources um stigma discrimination like everything in the world and also quite often the biggest barrier is if you've got a problem with someone on the boats, you can't get away from them so if you report someone especially if there's someone who's in like in charge of a team or your direct um superior who do you report it to You report to someone and then you have to kind of, you know, still work in that environment. And if you're in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of a crossing, in the middle of a summer season, it's really tough to kind of like stand up to someone who's more powerful than you and then carry on living and working with them. So that's really intimidating. Um, I also personally believe, and I include myself in this demographic, I think a lot of people go on um, with with the understanding or the self-belief that they deserve sometimes like the bad behavior around them or or they want to hide in plain sight so drinking every single day and like I said this was me in my 20s like I'm not pointing fingers here like I think I had such low self-worth throughout my 20s that drinking every single day I wanted other people to be drinking with me because it normalized what I was doing um I I was single for some part of it. In South Africa, everyone was kind of already married and producing children in their mid 20s. I felt very other in South Africa, and I didn't feel that in yachting where I could be like, you know, posing around, jumping on and off super yachts, um, drinking every single day without anyone judging. I mean, the boats buy alcohol for the crew. Like, we get an alcohol allowance. So, you know, you open up a fridge, any fridge on a boat, you'll see beer, wine, rosé, red wine, and it's all bought for you. Um, So there was a lot of uh, bad behavior and misdeeds that I did personally myself. And I think that I was hiding in plain sight and I was looking for other people to kind of normalize. Water finds its own level, is I think the saying.
0: I think that's fascinating. And I think there are many, many pockets of the industry where if you are somebody who might be misusing substances, if you are sort of in an elaborate act of avoidance around yourself and you're looking for that escapism, fantastic, fantastic place to work. Right? Absolutely. There's nothing better.
1: Yeah, and I think the worst insult ever on a boat is to be called boring. Like you can be a drunk, you can be an alcoholic, you can be whatever, you are lazy or you are boring you're pretty much dead to the industry. What the industry wants is young, good-looking, Colgate-smile human beings, like I said, who look good in a skort and who are able to kind of drink from 5 p.m. until 3 a.m. and still get up, put their skorts on, do your whole day's work, and be, like, chipper and cheerful. Like, that's always the description that goes with uh, stewardesses. you know, cheerful and chirpy and all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's, it's an industry that has very much been carved out and – and designed that way.
0: Why, like, what is the advantage to that for the industry?
1: I think if you are, if you have, okay, so this is me personally. I think if you have no self-worth and you put yourself in a service industry, like I hid behind the fact that I was really good at my job. Um, I didn't believe I deserved any better personally so that I could then give everything, all of my efforts, all of my time, all of my resources, like, everything to yachting. I would be the perfect stewardess. And again, like I said, because there were so many people that looked like me and had the same kind of like, probably the same issues as me, we, it was this kind of like fun, dysfunctional, like AA, uh, we're all kind of dealing with something. And I think seafarers have been running away from real life since there have been boats. You think about like where seafaring came from, sailors would come down to London, they would leave their their friends and family, they would get on boats. And it's still like, it's still really dangerous. Going across an ocean will always remain dangerous. You know, you've got to think about fires on board. You've got to think about deaths on board. If you have a simple, like if I cut myself in the galley and it's a, you know, arterial bleed, if I'm in the middle of the Atlantic, there are no ambulances and no helicopters that can get to me so just knowing that you are it's it's the last frontier the sea we've kind of organized and built on everything else if you want to go somewhere that is really wild you go to the sea or you go to the desert where you really kind of test yourself and see what you're made of
0: Mm -hmm. it's interesting how in that sense of like who is attracted to that and i think particularly because of the age of so many of the folks working in the industry. The, it's very, very easy to exploit people who have a combination of like low self-esteem, a very good work ethic and a
1: little bit of a death drive. Like, <laughs> Oh my God, you could just put that together as like a job. <laughs> I can just see the yachting pages. Are you young? Are you gorgeous? Do you have low no self-esteem? is for you. I mean, you're absolutely right. They're simultaneously the strongest and potentially most vulnerable people I know. Um, but yeah, I think the the industry does benefit from your vulnerability. I mean, you are in, you're inheriting young people uh, away from their friends and family, so there's no there's no one that kind of knows that person intimately that can track their drinking or can track their downfall, track their like mental health uh, journey, and then start to flag it. And in a lot of cases, my own included, like I was running away from a certain part of my family, um, and I didn't find. I didn't find my family like a place of safety and kind of comfort. So I wanted to run away from that. I found that safety and that comfort with other yachties who also had issues from home. That's why we ran away to sea really.
0: And in some ways there's something really beautiful about the solidarity and to see people that have your own story and you're not odd. And these are people that have a lot of shared experience. And so it does feel as though there is Despite all of the the madness and sort of the instability of that experience, there would also be a great deal of yeah support, solidarity, love, and community, even though it's a little bit bananas.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it is the crazy things that bond you. Like you're forged in fire. Friends are forged in fire when it comes to to yachting. And my three or four kind of longest friends are all from yachting and you know the stories that we tell the things that we survived um that kind of bonds us together And no one would really understand it unless you've done it Mm -hmm. and i'm really proud of the things that i've done you know when it comes to crossings the th- I look back and I'm just like, wow, you were so brave. Like, I took the last of my money. I actually won a competition that allowed me to fly to Antibes in France. I didn't even have enough money to do that. When I won this competition, I was like, bam, I'm putting it all on red and I've got myself a flight. And like, I look back at. At how brave I was. I arrived with like 100 euros. I was eating dry cereal because my money had to go to drinking in bars where you could like chat to people and find out if there was day work and jobs. So I couldn't even afford milk. I would eat dry cereal every single day. And I remember when I was down to like I think the last of my money, I was like if I don't get a job today, I'm going to have to like my dad will have to send me money and fly me home and all of that kind of stuff. I got one day of day work which gave me another two days and I got my first job on that second day. And the first job arrived, it's like 2005, there are no smartphones, there is like, yeah, there's a little bit of like internet and everything, but not in the way that we have it now. And I just got a random person on a random phone call telling me, okay, we're flying you to Panama City, pack your bags. And I flew myself to Panama City, like I had no idea who I was meeting, where I was going, if they were a human trafficking ring, if they were like genuine. So yeah, like brave and full hearty is probably the skills that you need to have. <laughs> In order to break into yachting, it's a little bit different now. It's more regulated. But back then it was, yeah, it was wild. And as you got older and
0: as your relationship to your mental health started to change, and as you mentioned, you started doing therapy and some other bits and bobs. How did you navigate your own mental health while you stayed in the industry, but you were empowered by more information? What was that like when you sort of, I imagine at a certain point, and I mean, definitely touch on this, where you sort of, you mentioned it, so you were on that boat that was really, really bad for you. You had a breakdown, you left the boat, did a little bit of work on yourself. What was it like going back into the industry with that different mindset? And how did you sort of navigate to the end of your career on boats?
1: Um. So I, I mean, I'd known nothing else for 12 years at this point. So I'd like to say that, you know, as I evolved and as I got better understanding, you know, I got like more strong and more resilient and I kind of just, you know, taptoed off like tippy toed off the boat. But I don't think it happened like that. I was still pretty um well, I was reliant on the money. Um, and I I wasn't ready to give it up yet. I think obviously therapy is not this kind of like miracle cure all. It's like this long evolutionary process that takes time and understanding and a few like two steps forward, eight steps back. So I got a job on a boat where, first of all, the the big difference is I adored the captain. The captain was a really honest, decent guy. um, And he hired other people that kind of looked and sounded like him. So that made a massive difference. And then I think um, I learned to compartmentalize everything. So when I was on a yacht, it was Yacht Emma. And Yacht Emma was kind of still a little bit wild, uh, would still go out and drink and come home and wake up fully clothed, like all those kind of like naughty things and when I came home to London I became more evolved Emma like I was having the conversations with the friends and family but the things that I wanted to have conversations about so I almost started inhabiting two different sides of my personality and when I when I went onto a boat it was don't be boring uh, be kind of like part of the crew, um, listen to disgusting jokes about, I don't know, all kinds of jokes that you would hear on the boat. And I'd almost have to kind of just shut myself down and like suspend any evolution or enlightenment because I had to be part of the crowd. It's a survival technique. Like I think there's something inside of us that still understands what it's like to be a tribe member and away from the, like the closest of the fire, you're going to be closer to the wolves and you're going to be closer to death if you're not close to the fire. So.
0: And it would be so lonely
1: if. Oh my God. Like loneliness is a massive thing on boats like loneliness even though you're surrounded constantly by you know up to like eight more people um if you don't vibe and click with those people if they are all into fitness and you're into drinking or if they're into drinking and you're into fitness if you don't vibe with those people you are very much on the outer edge of the circle and it's pretty brutal because like in a normal job, if people are going out after work and you've gone back home, how would you know that they've gone out without you? You wouldn't. So there's kind of like bliss in that ignorance. But on a boat, it's like you hear door slamming and everyone's leaving and they're like, ah, like everyone's getting excited. And you're like, hmm, no one's invited me. And if you're on a boat like that, where I've been on that boat once, it is so lonely. And if you've already gone on with low self-worth, what's the first thing you're gonna do? You're going to internalize it and you're going to think something is wrong with me. And if you do do that, you're either going to kind of, you know, really become depressed and more introverted, or, which I think is just as dangerous, you're going to become an inauthentic version of yourself. You're going to become this person that doesn't mind the racist, homophobic, sexist jokes and pretends to laugh at those kind of jokes just to get acceptance. And I think for me, as I got older and as I got a bit more kind of therapy, I found The difference between emma's harder and harder to reconcile and then as my friendships in london and as my life grew in london and i was having these really brilliant intelligent nuanced conversations that i was missing so much on boats it then actually became that i was doing them my friends a disservice i was okay abandoning myself because that was my choice but having to listen to something that i knew i couldn't tolerate in london emma there was a, there was a breaking point and i think that's actually i'm i'm better at sticking up for my friends than i am for myself and i think that's what got me kind of on the path out and thinking about an exit strategy
0: it's kind of depressing that it isn't possible to When I say take care of yourself, I mean figure out how to live authentically, how to respect your own values, how to figure out all that stuff, how to like live by what your true core beliefs are, that that seems like almost an impossibility if you have a life at sea or if you're working in the yachting industry and that it really isn't possible if you are somebody that takes your mental health seriously to survive and thrive within the industry. Is that, do you think that's accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that's very accurate. And also there's no, there's no value on a boat in individualism. You are a team, you're a unit. Mm -hmm. There's a high mind. I've even watched, like, I've been on boats where girls start to dress like each other. Like it's just this kind of, it's this, it taps into your survival instinct to kind of be part of the tribe, be part of the gang and exploits it to such a point. And unfortunately, you know, I hope that as we get more professional and more training um, into the industry, that we'll kind of raise the bar of what's allowed and what's kind of accepted on boats. But at the moment, the if you go into any kind of group of people, I mean, we've seen what happens on Twitter, right? All of the kind of like, global um, kind of meeting places, you get enough people in a room, you'll get trolls and you'll just get like one person that starts a conversation and that spins out of control. And I think to a certain extent, these are like little mini kind of like Twitter forums, um, each boat.
0: When you transitioned into mental health advocacy, Were you always in the back of your mind thinking about bringing what you learned as a mental health facilitator, as a trainer, as an advocate back into the yachting industry or was your plan to sort of have a clean break and not look behind you?
1: When I first found out about it, I was kind of in my head, I was thinking it was going to be chefs. It was going to be London. It was going to be my exit strategy. And obviously the the introduction I had with Kelly's course, I was like, brilliant. I found something I believe in, something that I can see makes a difference. And I'm going to be helping chefs like me. But it wasn't long until I realized, actually, this is really perfect for yachting. Um, We already have this kind of framework called the STCW, which you have to do. Order for you to be a seafarer, whether that's on super yachts, uh, cargo ships, anything, uh, fishing boats. You have to do your STCW. So that gives you um, brilliant, brilliant skills that I think everyone in the world should have. It gives you firefighting skills, uh, sea survival and first aid. and While I was kind of teaching mental health first aid and while I was learning, I was just like, all this takes is like it just we need to increase that bubble to just include mental health first aid. The Mm -hmm. framework is already there. And I think yachties are some of the most incredible self-resilient human beings on the planet. I mean, what other kind of industry would you have all of those skills um, on a boat. And we really drill them. We, like, we practice them every single month until you know your, kind of, what fire extinguishers to use and how to get someone onto a, um, like, a helicopter in this like, from the sea and all of that kind of stuff. And, yeah, I just... I suddenly realized that I didn't want to turn my back on the industry at all. I love the industry. It's given me my best friends. It's given me the opportunity to buy, you know, houses. Um, it's given me travels that I couldn't have afforded. And actually what I needed to do and what I wanted to do was leave the industry better than I found it. And that's why I kind of seize the mind, came into my head.
0: What has been sort of the biggest surprise as, you, as you've gone back and started training yachts Has there been something that surprises you about that experience? Or has it been as um, challenging, perhaps, or as wonderful, perhaps, as you assumed it would be?
1: Okay, so the difference is, we have courses that are mandated. So we have to do them. Um, The people I've been training are people that want to do it. So I've already got half the work cut out for me. The Mm -hmm. people that don't, mental health or don't think it has a place on boats are not booking my courses so the people who are are already kind of believers they want to have a difference they want to have the conversations i'm having so every single training group has just been pretty inspirational like the stories that come out over the training are simultaneously heartbreaking, devastating, like I just can't believe people have done so much of this kind of like life on their own or feeling on their own. But then there's also all this kind of empowerment, all these like teams coming together, all this chatter on Instagram and people starting to talk about it. And being part of that ride is pretty wild. Yeah, I haven't touched words so far. I haven't had any negativity. Um, The kind of every single training course I've ever had has had a like the repetition of a few things in the feedback. Um, This should be mandated. This should be mandatory for all people. And I feel so empowered now that I know I can help myself and others. And that's been every single feedback I've ever had, which is kind of wild and brilliant.
0: I honestly feel like crying. Like I could cry. It's also, there's just something really beautiful about, I mean, exactly what you just said, the idea that like, it's not about leaving it or, you know, abandoning life at sea for life on land. It's about leaving it in a better condition than you found it. What else do you do with an experience that was so intense?
1: Exactly, exactly. Like harness it, take everything it's given, because it's given me a lot of strength. And I just want to share this story because this is kind of how it goes full circle. So when I had my breakdown, I was, I would kind of been really battling depression for three years and I had been suicidal for about 18 months of those. And there was one girl on a boat. Um, she had become my best friend or a long-term friend. And she'd always been brilliantly honest about her mental health journey, The the, the day I met her at a wedding, she had just come back into yachting, having taken six months off to have like a bit of a mental break and look after herself, which 10 years ago, no one was ever admitting to that. She was kind of like a female Russell Brand. She was brilliant, erudite, gorgeous, confident, and she was really okay being vulnerable and telling you know me that she'd gone through this. So fast forward, I've kind of I'm going through the worst time in my life, and I just can't talk to anyone. I can't talk to my friends, I can't talk to my family. I think it's all in my head. There's only one person I can think it's okay to talk to, and it's that's the person who was so honest and brilliant. And so when I've told her that I was thinking about killing myself, she was so incredible. I think she actually asked me first. She said, "Are you thinking about um, uh, like ending your life?" And I was like, "Yeah, I am actually." And she got me off the boat, she got me into therapy, she got me help. And uh, last month I got to train her on a mental health first aid course. And the two of us were so emotional because I wouldn't be here if she hadn't started a conversation about mental health and suicide. And now that I'm here, both of us have gone full circle and I get to train her and hopefully she'll yeah, be part of the, the mental health journey of Seize the Mind in the future.
0: That's absolutely beautiful. And it just goes to show that, I mean, so much of what we're teaching and talking about and thinking about is making space for conversation in industries where traditionally there has been no space at all for that. You'll find that in kitchens on land. You'll find that at sea and how much of a difference that truly, truly makes.
1: I mean, it it can save a life. Like, Mm -hmm. and even one life, even if you do all of this training, you have all of these conversations. If one person's life is saved, that's enough. That's, that's all I want. I just, I've seen, I've seen the effect having a conversation can have in my own life. And now I'm getting to see how other people who feel more confident to start conversations. And I, I kind of think of it as this, like this ripple effect, you know, you know, you kind of, this little drop in the ocean goes in and that's my tiny, weeny like little, uh, contribution. And then you just watch and I'm kind of watching it grow and grow and grow and more and more have conversations around it and be okay talking about it and the people that are you know most vulnerable at least they know they can have conversations about it and they can access help whereas two three years ago it was kind of like There's a one-way door in on yachts. You talk about mental health, or you have a breakdown. The door opens, and we never hear from you again. And it's just not like that anymore. And that's that's been brilliant to see. For
0: any yachtis that are listening, do you have any tips and tricks to take care of their mental health more effectively at sea that you wish you would known when you were in like the thick of it on boats?
1: I mean, all the usual things, you know, looking after your physical health and carving out time for yourself, um, reaching out and connecting with people, not just on the boat but on shore, just so you get that kind of level and that balance I think it's it's really really hard and I think if you find yourself on a boat not feeling authentic your authentic self not feeling accepted don't be scared to kind of just quietly and silently look for another boat that's more aligned to who you are try and get as close as you can to a family if you don't have a family at home if you've left if you've left wherever, South Africa, Australia, England to to start this, this whole new career, then try and find people that are going to appreciate you for you. And if you don't find it, move on and find another boat that does. Because there's always going to be a boat out there that does kind of like vibe with you. It's so hard. It's so hard. There's like, there's a million different things that can help, but there's not one kind of fix all. It would just be to prioritize yourself, which is the... It doesn't work because if you're getting onto yachts, that's that's the antithesis of what we're told to do.
0: I think that that's a great answer. So like if inherently it's going to be self-sacrificing, it's inherently going to be sort of like a group thinking community, for lack of a better word, energy, where you give it all away to other people, whether that's the people you're working with or the guests or whoever, that who you're giving yourself to is the thing that will make the difference.
1: Yeah.
0: So the industry, you you can't change that element of self-sacrifice. You're never going to change the fact that like you have to sort of give up your skin to be successful. So if you're thoughtful and conscious about where you're doing that, that's the thing that can really protect you i imagine
1: yeah definitely i think a, a better way of putting it is you know the job and the industry will always empty your tank you have to accept that you know in service your tank will always be empty so then figure out or find a boat that fills your tank up on the downtimes whether that's through the crew or through your own kind of like i hate using the word journey but if that's through your own journey you're looking after yourself find ways to fill up your own tanks in between so that you kind of get some level of balance because you cannot run on an empty tank over and over again we just you break and burn out
0: that is fantastic advice um (laughs) the work you're doing is so fantastic and i'm so excited to see sees the mind just grow and grow and grow um before i let you go i want to do a little quick fire Ooh, (laughs) go i know isn't it thrilling if you could only go to one london restaurant for the rest of your life what london restaurant would that be
1: palomar or barbary
0: favorite dessert cheese board <laughs> <laughs> best item on the menu at mcdonald's
1: chicken nuggets what's
0: your what's your favorite view in london
1: ooh the view from my bed i like looking out <laughs>
0: Um, who is your dream dinner guest? Uh,
1: John Stewart from The Daily Show, the old host of The Daily Show. Intelligent, polite, love him.
0: Yes. Um, before I let you back into the rest of
1: your day, where can people find Seize The Mind? Where can people find you? All the usual kind of channels. Uh, we have an Instagram page at Seize The Mind. Um, so feel free to follow us and see where all of our trainings are coming up. We, uh, run trainings in person and most of the yachting centers. So we have trainings coming out of... Fort Lauderdale, Palmer, Antibes, um, looking at expanding to Antigua as well. And then we do all of the online trainings, but all of the info is on our website www.seizethemind.co.uk
0: Fabulous um, Emma, thank you again for sitting down and being so vulnerable and just bringing such an important message when we think about chess, we forget that they're in the middle of the ocean also, you know
1: Exactly, exactly well thank you so much for the opportunity it's been great chatting to you and yeah, I love this podcast so I will be Listening to more, not to this one. I won't be listening to this. <laughs> but I love all the content that you're putting out and all the work that you kind of redo do as a team. So thanks for the opportunity. Uh, thank you so much. We'll talk
0: to you soon. Beyond the Pass is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to Kelly'sCause.com or find us on Instagram at Kelly's Cause.